We're talking about human sexuality, and uh, I started it off, and I want to recap that with a little bit of the basis, and then I'd like to take that and drive it further in uh, to the scriptures today. Marty came in and talked last week about what uh, sexuality looks like according to God's plan in marriage, and then he left town, and I get to talk about sexual immorality, and I call that incredibly bad planning on my part. But he's always been a little smarter than I, so that, that would kind of explain that. You know, I was talking to Lance Ward, very, very sharp guy today about this lesson, and he uh, brought up a quote that I want to share with you from Tim Keller. Because if you think about this topic of human sexuality, particularly sexual immorality, the biblical perspective on what is sexually immoral, when you think about that, that's really a difficult topic for us to talk about. And here's a clue to that. Tim Keller said this, and I think historically, this is quite likely to be true. He said, until now, there's never been a culture in world history that has put so much hope in sex for happiness. Until now, there's never been a culture in the history of the world that's put so much hope in sex, sexual fulfillment, to achieve happiness. And I think that's likely quite true. Consequently, what God has to say about sexual, human sexuality, sexual morality, immorality, is very confrontational to this culture in particular, to the American culture. My purpose in this talk is not to confront. My purpose is not to convict. My purpose is to faithfully present to you the biblical perspective on human sexuality particularly sexual immorality. That happens to be the section that we want to talk about. What does it look like when we depart from God's design for sexuality? And that's going to hit every one of us, and it's really going to hit our culture dead on. So we're going to talk about some serious things. The way I'd like to go about talking about that is to not only tell you what the Bible says, I'd like to talk to you about why the Bible says what it says. I think this is going to give us a much more holistic understanding because when we talk about some of these issues that we're going to discuss, people talk past each other a lot. It becomes very emotional. You hear a lot of persuasive arguments on this side and emotionally persuasive arguments on this side and someone's coming from this direction and that direction. And I think to represent the biblical perspective, it's important to understand why the Bible says what it says. So let me start with God's design for sexuality. This will be very brief. This is what we, the groundwork that we laid a couple of weeks ago. First, Genesis 1, God's purpose is to bring order out of chaos and meaning out of emptiness. That's a creative design, and you'll see that all through the scriptures. God brings order, harmony, and meaning into everything that he touches. God then created man and woman. And he did that in a very deliberate way. He created them to be equal, both image bearers, but not the same. And that's a key idea, this idea of sameness, this idea of coming together, of dis unlike things coming together to make a harmonious whole, is also a theme in Scripture. And God models that with men and women. Equal, but not the same. And then finally, God designed a man and a woman for unity in marriage. These are this is what we talked about in Genesis. You see some of these design principles. We went on to talk about why God uses that as a model for the unity of his believers and himself, for Christ and the church. But these are God's design principles. This is what God 
intends for us. Then something happened called the fall, and we discussed that as well. The fall is essentially an event where humanity says to God, and the scripture is really interesting in this in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember what the serpent says to Eve, he says to Eve, if you disobey God, if you opt out of God's order, you will not die. In other words, there will not be a consequence. Instead, if you will go your own way and do what you want, you will be like God. And so Adam and Eve take that path. They reject God's order and they follow self, expecting to be fulfilled. Well, you know how that turned out. It didn't turn out the way that they thought. The serpent lied. He was deceptive. That pattern continues. But what you see is the fundamental decision that comes down to us in this day hasn't have just to do with sexuality, but that's our topic, so I'll restrict myself to that is, will we follow God's plan or will we seek fulfillment, happiness, self-satisfaction our way? That is the dilemma, and there are consequences to both. So that's the fall. You're always asking the question, will it be God or will it be myself? You're going to see this recurring theme come up. So, will we serve God or self? I think Marty talked about this passage in Romans chapter 1. The New Testament speaks to what happens when we choose self. Romans is the presentation of the gospel, and it starts out and it says, here's where we are. We have chosen to seek fulfillment through self-gratification, through our way instead. And here's what Romans says. Although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God or give thanks to him. In other words, we went our own way. And their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, we began to seek fulfillment and explanation and understanding through self, selfish means. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. This is an interesting passage because it links sexual morality, specifically sexual immorality, with idolatry. And that, that really is the why of the Bible. And it's going to explain why the Bible says what it does. The Bible wants to bring us back into alignment with God, to serve God, to worship God, the true creator. What Romans says is when we go the other way, we begin to see immorality happen. So idolatry and immorality idolatry and materialism, idolatry and a lot of things are equated in the scriptures, but again, we're talking about sexuality. So this idea of idolatry. So what God is trying to do is to bring us into his design. What you see in Romans is an explanation of the consequences of us going our way. What does that look like in the world today? Trying to find gratification through fulfillment in sex runs the gamut from exploitation, sex slavery. I mean, it's almost impossible to believe, but that actually is, is a real problem in our country. It's not a third world problem. It's a problem in our country. All the way to exploitation of a kind that you probably don't think about. Here's another way, and it happens in our marriages in our country. And that is, if you are not making me happy and you are not fulfilling me, then I will find someone who does. That's at its base an exploitive relationship. 
You are only valuable in that you fulfill me. So when you go that route for fulfillment, particularly through sex, we end up in a very broken situation. What we find with sexual immorality is that taking anything outside its intended purpose, and Marty talked to you last time about God's intended purpose for sex, a marriage between a man and a woman, and it's part of that unity. When we begin to use that to find happiness, fulfillment, self-gratification, it's like using anything for a purpose to which it's not intended, whether that's your lawnmower or that's your car or anything else. When you begin to use it for things for which it's not intended, things break. That's what the Bible describes as sexual immorality. Now, one thing I want to tell you before we jump in and look at a few scriptures is God's purpose is redemptive, not punitive. I want you to understand what God is trying to do. God is trying to take us and bring us to his design. In other words, the, what the scripture has to say about sexual morality is not to punish us, it is to redeem us. It is to lead us back to harmony. Remember, God wants to bring order out of the chaos of our sexual lives. He wants to bring meaning into this empty lack of fulfillment that we feel. He wants to redeem us, not punish us. So I want to talk about the scriptures just a little bit. Time does not permit us to go into the detail I'd really like to go. You feel free to ask questions and I'll be happy to answer the ones that we can. But what I'd like to do is give you the story of what's happening here. And there's a great analogy for this. What the Bible teaches about sexuality, particularly sexual immorality, follows a narrative track. And what I mean by that is this. Let me give you an analogy. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's a really helpful way to think about this. The New Testament in Galatians chapter 3 says that the law, the Old Testament law, which is where I'll start, was a school teacher to bring us to Christ. And I'd like for you to think about God dealing with us collectively as a race and us as individuals as though you're raising a child. Imagine a two-year-old. And I'll tell you, having had three two-year-olds and gone through that three times, I'm not necessarily a believer in the theological idea of original sin, but two-year-olds almost get me there. You know, I mean, it's just really close, right? Imagine your two-year-old and just magically make them 25 years old. They act the same way, they think the same way, but they're adults now. Well, that's a disaster, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's completely a disaster. You cannot be an adult and think and act in the self-centered, simple ways that a two-year-old acts. What you do as a parent is you take this selfish little two-year-old, this ill-equipped, poorly adjusted, can't survive on their own in the world two-year-old, and you begin to mold them, guide them, shape them, teach them, etc., so that when they get to be the 25-year-old, they are well-adjusted. They not only have rules, they have understanding. How do you do that? Well, with two-year-olds, you have a lot of rules. You can do this, you can't do that. Does a two-year-old understand why? Not particularly at first you simply want to establish limits you begin to train them as they get older you begin to explain why we do what we do when we say no you may not take a stick and scrape it down the side of daddy's car that's a rule to a two-year-old to a 25-year-old it's the principle of respect for property 
you understand this process. I want you to think about what the scripture has to say about this as that process. This is God taking humanity from a immature, fallen, broken two-year-old and bringing our sexuality back to something that's whole and well-adjusted. So what would you expect to see? If you open up the Old Testament, you should expect to see a lot of rules and regulations. I'm going to go to just some of the most famous passages. There are many. But this is, uh, this is God, by the way, in Leviticus 18. And he's talking to the Israelites. And this is where you get this sense. He said, speak to my children, the Israelites, my people, and say to them, I'm the Lord. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. And you must not do in Canaan where I'm taking you. You must not live the way they live. Do not follow their practices. Obey my laws. Be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. What's he saying? He said, in our family, this is what we used to tell our kids, I know what your friends do, but in our family, this is what we do. This is how we live in our family. And that's what God is saying. And that prefaces a big section of Leviticus that has a lot of do's and don'ts in it. Some of them relate to sexuality. So here are just some examples in Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 through 20 has a lot of this. And much of this section has to do with sexuality. And I've just picked a few. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations, I am the Lord. And then it goes on to delineate that in very specific ways. In other words, incest. There's a boundary place there. God says that happens out in the cultures. It will not happen with you. Do not have sexual relationship with your, with your neighbor's wife. In other words, adultery. Having sex with someone other than your wife is not permitted. That happened in the cultures around them. But God said, this is not the rule in our house. I mean, think of our model again. Third, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. He says, in the nations you will see uh, homosexual behavior. He says, that is not what we do in our family. This goes on and on, but I've just picked a few here to let you know, give you the sense. See how much of a do and don't this is? There's not a lot of explanation here about, okay, why, God, talk to me, explain to me. You see God in the Old Testament beginning to raise up a very immature and broken humanity. For example, in the Old Testament, I'm going to uh, go ahead and preempt a couple of questions because you might say, well, you know, Old Testament, New Testament have some different standards. They absolutely do. They don't have any difference in intent. They don't have any difference in purpose, but they very much have a difference in tone. It's the difference between talking to a two-year-old and a 25-year-old, for example. In the Old Testament, polygamy is permitted for a time. It's not condoned, it's not commanded, but it is permitted even though it is not God's ultimate intention, is it? You let your two-year-old do things you will not let your 25-year-old do. Why? Because we are moving you that direction. Divorce is another thing that was permitted in the law of Moses. Not commanded, not condoned, but permitted. Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts. Let me translate that, because you two-year-olds can't get your act together yet. He said, and we're going to do, we're going to get there, but it was permitted. Do you, does this make sense to you? This is why the scriptures sound the way they do in the Old Testament, is God is bringing us along and raising us up. When you get to the New Testament, you get into 
talking more to an adult. You get Christ is coming. The time is fulfilled. The Old Testament law had been around for 1,400 years. When Jesus comes, the whole world has heard about and understands the commands and the laws of the God of Israel. The Old Testament, uh, the law of Moses, had 613 commands. Do this, don't do that. New Testament, it's not like that at all. There are still the prohibitions, there are still the same morality, the still the same design, but it sounds really different. The New Testament uses this word, Greek word, New Testament's written in Greek, and the Greek word is pornia. And it's where we get our word pornography. And what pornia means is sexual immorality. That word in the New Testament is not so specific. Don't lie with your neighbor's wife. Don't marry your second cousin, third removed on your mother's side. You know, it's, it's not like that. Uses this broad term that encompasses everything in the Old Testament, but even more in intent. Sexual immorality in the New Testament, that word, pornia, has a big breadth of meaning. It would cover what we would consider pornography, and that is the idea of letting impure things into our hearts, seeking fulfillment through self-gratification. In other words, that very self-centered way of looking at it. So pornography would be part of that. Uh, in those days, they had a lot of orgies. I don't think we have as many as they used to have, but we call it something different now. We call it sexual promiscuity. In other words, in those days, having sex with a lot of different people at a big celebration was actually something that was a good thing. Having sex with temple prostitutes was considered an act of, quote, worship. In other words, it was something, promiscuity was considered a good thing in those days. That was considered sexually immoral by God's standards. The New Testament includes that. For us, it would be promiscuity. In other words, finding your sexual fulfillment in, look, I have sexual thoughts, not a one-woman man, need to have sex with 20, 30 women or 20, 30 men or what, whatever you want to do. That's our version. That's included in the scope of the meaning of this word. Sex outside of marriage. In other words, this is beyond God's design plan. Is part of pornia, homosexuality. All the things that are mentioned here are, fit within this. But you notice now that the New Testament begins to speak to this as though speaking to adults. It's not so much a pars out this and that. It's a you understand the principle. Things that deviate from God's design are lumped under this idea of sexual immorality. So let me give you a couple of passages because you're going to see that word a lot. And you're going to go, wow, can they get more detailed? Well, everything in the Old Testament and everything that deviates from God's design. That's what's encompassed in that. Because now God's speaking as though he's speaking to adults, people who know the scriptures and know his design. So here's a passage uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm just picking a couple that are just really well known. This is one of the things that are called vice lists. And it's basically delineating God's plan from a self-centered plan. And it says some pretty strong things. Do you not realize that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't, in other words, don't kid yourself. Neither the sexually immoral, there's our word pornia, anything in that, that practice, practicing that is outside God's design. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, again, you see that connection, nor adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, 
drunkards, slanders, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let me pause and make one thing clear that is probably already clear to you. That list has a lot of things on it that don't have anything to do with sexuality. And that's a really important point because God has more to say to us than about sexuality. This series happens to be focusing on human sexuality, but I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that there are a lot of things in that list. There are a lot of things that are outside God's design, and God says, people who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's really serious, but it makes sense, doesn't it? It says, look, if you want to follow God's way and be part of his design, then you will be in harmony with the design. This is just the New Testament's way of saying, I'm going to give you a description of what's outside that. Avoid those things. Well, you and I look at that list, and I don't know about you, but I don't think anybody looks at that list and doesn't say, I'm convicted by something in that list. And Paul goes on and says this, and that is what some of you were. It doesn't say that is what some of you are, because that's no longer our identity in the kingdom. That is what some of you were, but you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is that transformative effect. This is God moving us from the self-centered path into the God-centered path. The theological term for that is repentance, changing your mind, changing your direction. So you see where, where God's headed with this? He's got a very redemptive plan. These lists aren't here to say, okay, I just, I'm watching you, and, oh, and you're on that list, so I'm going to punish you. There will certainly be a judgment, but the point of these lists is simply to make it clear to us what is self-seeking behavior and what is God-seeking behavior. The point here is to draw us. Paul said, that's what you used to be, but thanks to Jesus Christ, you are not that anymore. That's where the New Testament's going. One final passage, I know I'm going through this pretty quickly, and I'll pause here in a minute to take your questions and we can get into it a little bit more. One other passage that's really quoted a lot when it comes to sexual immorality is the rest of the Romans passage. So let me finish it up. This is Romans chapter one again. Because of this, the idolatry, the turning away from God, the I'll find my fulfillment, my happiness through self-gratification rather than following God and his design. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men, received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, we stray out of God's will. Listen to this list. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do them, but they approve of those who practice them. Again, look at that list. There are a lot of things in that list. And that's the New Testament's way of saying, look, when you become an idolater, when you move from following God to worshiping self, because that's really what we're doing, he says, this is the fruit of that. 
These are the signs of that. Gossip, slander, deceit, envy, sexual immorality. Again, we're focused on that, but I really want you to see that all of these things are things that we're called to turn from. There's no particular sin that's, you know, okay, God says, okay, number one is this and number five is this. No, you just kind of see this list and he said, this is characteristic of living in that self-centered way. And it's God's way of making a sharp line. If you're Satan, what you really would like to do is you want to blur the lines between right and wrong. The more you blur the line, the easier it is to miss the guardrail. What the New Testament does is it says, no, we want to draw a really bright line, God says, because I want to make sure you know which side you're on and I want to invite you to come to this side. That's essentially what's happening in the scriptures. So I know that's a kind of a whirlwind wind tour of that, and we'll, like I say, we'll dive into more details if you want. But I wanted you to understand, what does the Bible say? Bottom line, sexual immorality is anything outside that design. Sex outside of a marriage with a man and a woman is considered sexually immoral. There are many other things that are considered outside God's will, but for specifically talking about sexuality, that's outside God's design. What is the Scripture's point in saying this? It's to take us and grow us from a broken, empty, chaotic, self-centered way of looking at it and attempt to raise us up and bring us to wholeness as adults. That's, if, if you read the scriptures, when it speaks about this, read it in that way and you get the why of what the Bible says in addition to the what of what the Bible says. Well, let me take a little detour here because one of the things that's really a big deal in our culture is the idea of homosexuality. It's probably bigger in some senses than it needs to be because you saw that list. There are so many things on that list that we need to be talking about, but in our culture, that happens to be a real point of contention. You see that mentioned in this list along with a lot of other things. But when we talk about the idea uh, the concept of homosexuality in our culture. I don't find that those discussions are very productive or very useful. I find there's a lot of confusion because people, we don't know what we mean when we say that. We just spent some time talking about what does the Bible mean when it talks about sexual immorality. We need to understand what do we mean by that. In our culture, you get a lot of conflicting messages about homosexuality. And I'd like to to just give us a little guide for when we're going to discuss this, I think this is a good model to use. This comes from, actually comes from a lot of places, but in the list of books that I put for some suggested reading, the book by Yarhouse uh, explains this model a little better, but I find this to be very useful, and there's a really important point to be made here for us. So let's talk about this for a minute, a model for discussing homosexuality. Let me summarize this. There are a certain percentage of people in our society who experience same-sex attraction. For some people, that does not continue. But for other people, that does continue. And in fact, that same-sex attraction is persistent enough and intense enough that people experience a same-sex orientation. In other words, that is the way I feel oriented in my sexual desires. So there's the issue of same-sex attraction, and if that is persistent and intense enough, people experience that as having an orientation toward the same sex. There is then the idea of 
homosexual practice, in other words, living a lifestyle. And then finally, and I think these categories are just useful, is having a homosexual identity. This is who I am and this is how I define myself. When we talk about it in our culture, people mean different things on this spectrum when they talk about it. And I think it's useful to be a little bit more precise. The reason I like this is I want to talk just for a second about our culture and how we, uh, the narrative that our culture and where God's desire departs on this. Let me start with heterosexual attraction. It is considered quite normal in our culture for, I'm going to pick on the men for just a second as an example, for a young man to have a healthy sex drive. That's not considered to be, that's just kind of the way you are. We have a healthy sex drive. Some men have more than others, but you do. And so what are you going to do with that? Well, the cultural narrative in many places is you need to express that. You need to express that freely because it will give you satisfaction and it's also a validation of manhood. In other words, for certain young men, the cultural narrative that they're taught is having sex with a lot of women is a good thing. It is gratifying to you, and it's also validating your set. Think about some of the heroes in our culture. They are heroes and role not all, but they are role models because they have the power and the appeal to have sex with whoever they want. Young men see that. Again, I'm just picking on the young men for a second. And you end up with a culture where you have a lot of fatherless children. Why? The cultural narrative says you should express that. You want to be fulfilled. You want to be happy. You need to express your sexual desires. Not everybody goes that direction with it. God would say, yes, you have desires to go have sex with women. That is how young men feel. But you do not have to buy into the cultural narrative that you should then go express that as much as you want. The Bible says that is immoral. That is outside God's design. You do not have to do that. You can surrender your sexuality to God and you can go live a different direction. Does that make sense? So you'll see that God and the culture agree. Young men have sexual desires. Okay. Now the question comes, where do you go with that? A cultural narrative that says happiness comes. Remember the Tim Keller quote? Sex is the key to happiness. Biblical model says that is not the key to happiness at all. There are other ways to go. In other words, following God's design is the way to go. Same thing here. I don't know if you think about it this way. But one thing, I want to ask you, why do people have a same-sex orientation? Well, the current science on that is that it is not known why people have a same-sex orientation. There are a number of factors that have been identified. There's some really interesting research but there is no identifiable single cause. But for most, not all, but for most people, though, who have a same-sex orientation, they do not experience a sense of choice. Do you understand what I'm saying? I want to step past the inconclusive scientific information because it's a little bit irrelevant. What matters is people who feel that way, or at least most people who feel that way, don't experience a sense of choice. They say, I seem to be oriented, have feelings of same-sex attraction that are very persistent toward the same sex. That seems to be how I'm made. 
So I'd like to start there. Now, from that point on, at that point, that's again like, just like the prior situation that I was talking to you about. At that point, you simply have a situation as it exists. Now the question becomes, what do I do with that? There's a strong cultural narrative that says, if you have a same-sex orientation, just like with the young men I talked about a second ago, this is the same situation. You may just not think about it the same. If you have a same-sex orientation, then to be happy, you need to embrace that. You need to say, that's who I am, that's who I'm supposed to be, that's what I'm supposed to do. I need to go uh, marry uh, someone of the same sex or go have uh, sexual relationships. I need to fulfill myself. The key to happiness is fulfilling my sexual identity. That is a narrative, and it is a strong cultural narrative. It is not the only narrative. God would say there are other ways to go than that. The key to happiness, just like for the heterosexual, was not to go express your sexuality in any way you can and hope that you'll have happiness rather than emptiness, which is what ends up being the case. In this situation, God says, I have a better way. In other words, you can surrender that to God's way just like you can as a heterosexual. The difference here comes where do we go with these things for both heterosexuals and homosexuals. Is that helpful? For us as believers, I think that's really important because for heterosexuals who are experiencing that, we do a pretty good job, not nearly as good as we should, of saying, look, here's what God says about your sexuality and what it looks like as a heterosexual to surrender that to God. And we want to walk together in how do you put up barriers to be pure. We talk about sexual purity with our teenagers, with our adults. A couple of the books that I put on that list are books that talk to us about how do we surrender our sexuality to God and say, you show me your design for sexuality for a heterosexual. How do I remain pure? How do I find meaning and order in your design, God? We do that not as well as we should, but we do it pretty well. We do this very poorly. Church needs to be a place where we can say to someone, just like the other situation who has a same-sex, excuse me, attraction or orientation, and say, let's talk about that. There are choices to be made here. A choice to seek gratification through the narrative of self-centeredness and a choice to surrender that to God. We don't do that very well. We need to be the place that talks through and walks through surrendering our sexuality to God, whatever it is. And that's the kind of place that we want to be. Does that make sense? God's interest is in redeeming our sexuality and bringing it back to his design. Let me pause there for a second and let you digest that. You may or may not have questions at this point. Sometimes I need to give you a little space to think about it. I know I went through that quickly. So summarizing, God has a design there is the choice, will I seek satisfaction through self-centered means? Will I submit to God's design? The scriptures are intended to grow us up and bring us back to an ordered, meaningful, harmonious way of dealing with our sexuality. Actually, a lot of other things too, but again, we're talking about sexuality. And we as a church are in the business of walking with each other as we surrender our sexuality to God and walking that out with each other. 
That's how we as a church, as God's people, participate in God's design for sexuality, is walking with each other out of the broken world into the whole world. Questions? How do we know for sure what exactly is included in the word pornea? Yeah, good question. How do you know what is included in the word pornea? That Greek word. Um, If you think about the New Testament using that, it's uh, in and of itself, it simply means sexual immorality. Well, what does sexual immorality mean? It depends on who's saying it, just as it does today. You might talk to someone over here and say, well, this is what sexual immorality is to me, real thin. I mean, just one or two things are sexually immoral. You may talk to, say, a Christian and say, actually, there's quite a number of practices in the world that are outside God's design. So who's saying it? In the context of Jesus and his disciples, you're speaking about it in the context of God's plan and God's design. Sexual immorality encompasses anything outside God's design. And that's why I started there, is to understand the scripture's really clear at the very beginning what God's design is. So that's how we understand what sexual immorality is. The rest of the New Testament is gonna spell it out a little bit, but the New Testament's not interested in giving you 613 categories. It's speaking to adults. So it will spell that out a little bit more, but fundamentally we understand it because that's what the New Testament's talking about what's inside God's plan, what's outside God's plan. Would you have, would you have a problem attending um, a gay wedding or an event at a church where a gay wedding is performed? So, if you, in case you didn't hear, would, what, is, what would be a, a stance or a reasonable approach on attending a same-sex marriage? or attending a church where same-sex marriages are performed. This gets a little bit out. First of all, let me just be really definitive. That is not consistent with the biblical idea of sexual. I mean, that should be kind of obvious by now. The scriptures don't teach that uh, heterosexual promiscuity is, is inside God's will. It doesn't teach that same-sex marriage is inside God's will. That's simply the teaching of the scripture. So that question then actually becomes a little bit different question. It's not a question of what is the biblical perspective on sexuality. It's a question on how then will we live that out, walk that out. The key to that, and I'm not going to give you an easy answer. I want you to think about this a little bit. Here's a principle that I'd like to guide your thinking. What have I said is our role in dealing with, again, we're just talking about sexuality. You can apply this to a lot of things in Scripture. Our role is to be part of God's redemptive purpose. In other words, God wants to go to all of us who are broken, and we have all been broken. Remember, Paul? And that is what some of you were. We all were something on that list. And someone came to us. Someone brought us the good news and said, Jesus Christ has a better way. Will you choose that, or will you continue to follow the self? We present the gospel to be part of that redemptive purpose. I would use that as a guide for how, do, how am I part of God's redemptive purpose? Can I be part of God's redemptive purpose? And that's going to depend a lot on the individuals. You know, I have some friends who, uh, I know I'm going on a little bit, but I really want you to think this through from the principal idea instead of just a yes, you should do this, no, you shouldn't do that. 
I'm talking to adults. We're not two-year-olds anymore. We want to do things that are really consistent with what's God's heart on this, what brings God's redemptive purpose. I have some friends who are wrestling uh, with heterosexual, uh, the ideas of lust and the keeping things in our lives in the proper bounds. We're going to talk next time about pornography a little bit because it's just a huge temptation. It's so accessible in our culture, and it's just such an a way to compromise us and pull us away from God's plan that people wrestle with that. Some people I talk to say, you know what, this is not who I am. This is not what I want. I want to follow God. Let's begin to walk through that together. Others will say, there's nothing wrong with this. This is my fulfillment of my sexuality. I'm going to do my way. I'm going to be happy. Those are two really different situations. So the question is, how can we fulfill God's redemptive purpose? And I would argue that the answer in those two situations is a little different. So try to think about that from the point of view of how do we participate in what God's trying to do? How can we help the redemptive process? Sometimes the answer is you cannot. Sometimes the answer is you can. But that's what we're called to do, is to reach out lovingly and say, will you not turn and go this direction? That's essentially what Jesus was doing. Good question, and it's a hard question. It's one that requires us to think it through. It's not a two-year-old question. It's an adult question. Very good point. Since God lists homosexuality with other sins, is one worse than the other, or does he feel the same about them all? For example, if someone is an alcoholic and they don't stop drinking, is that the same as someone who practices a gay lifestyle and does not change that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Let's talk about that because I want to make a distinction here. There is a difference in some of the sins on the list in this sense. Different sins have different impacts. It is clearly a different impact to murder someone than to lie to someone. Okay, that, that's kind of a duh statement, but I want to get that out there. Different sins have different impacts. What about being right with God, being reconciled, being in the kingdom of God? Romans chapter 1 is going to spend three chapters making this very point. Everyone has sinned and fallen short, and everyone is under a sentence of death. And for me to say, hey, he killed somebody, I just lied. God's point is, hey, I appreciate the fact that maybe the impact of his sin was more, but we are not righteous. So in the important sense, we all are under a sentence of death for our disobedience and our sin. The fundamental issue of self, of the choice, remember, will I serve God or will I serve self? All of the things on this list that are called sin are sins because they are worshiping self in one way or another. So in that sense, the most important sense, all those sins give us a death sentence. Now, I'm just trying to be realistic. Are some sins have a bigger impact? Yes, but from God's point of view, it makes no difference. The liars get in, but the cheaters don't? No. I mean, you don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. So that's a great question. Impact of sins is different. Some are public, some are private, some have huge impacts, some have smaller, but all are rebellion against God. All of our sin convicts us. Romans 1 through 3, that's the whole point of that, is that every single one, no matter how moral you are, we all need Jesus Christ because we're all under a death sentence. Great question. King David was one of God's most beloved people mentioned in the Bible, but he had multiple wives and concubines. 
Is he allowed into the kingdom of heaven? Is he allowed, I'm sorry, didn't hear. the kingdom of heaven. Is he allowed in the kingdom of heaven? That'll be up to God to decide. I'll tell you that, uh, I mean, if, if I could decide that for you, that, that would be really something. I mean, I just don't like to answer that question. I'll tell you what the scripture says instead. King David was under a dispensation. He was under an arrangement with God under the law of Moses. And those things were permitted. Were they within God's ultimate will? No. That's like me asking you this question. It's like me saying to this, okay, my 25-year-old just uh, wet his pants. And so consequently, does that mean that he's going to get discipline? Your answer might be, well, yeah, you can't do that. You know, but my two-year-old did that. Will I discipline my two-year-old? Well, maybe not. Poor choice, I realize. But do you understand what I'm trying to say? God's looking at, yeah, okay, not a good metaphor on a, on a moment's notice. But the point is, God permitted some things in that era and with those people because they were two-year-old. I'm using my analogy again. He's bringing them along. Whereas he does not permit that in the New Testament era. Jesus directs that specifically on the issue of divorce, he gets asked, why did Moses allow us to divorce? They they knew that wasn't God's intent. He said, but Moses allowed it. And Jesus said, he did that because you were two-year-olds and you just couldn't deal with it because of the hardness of your hearts. But that is not God's design. Does that make sense? So that's why that happens, is to use my example, the difference between a two-year-old and a 25-year-old. We are moving closer to what God wants for us. One more, and then I'm gonna get into a couple of, uh, one other interesting twist on this subject. Okay, I understand what you're saying about having a choice to follow the cultural narrative or to follow God's plan, whatever your orientation. But it seems that for someone with the same sex orientation, that choice is more sacrificial. There is hope for the heterosexual person to experience God's plan for a healthy and active life, but not for someone with same sex attraction. How do you counsel a gay Christian who wants to experience the love and intimacy of marriage? Perfect segue. Here's what I want to talk about next. I mean, I, I want to I address that. I want to address where that's coming from. And I don't mean that specifically to the questioner, but that argument has some very interesting presuppositions in it. Let's, uh, we'll get to that. Let's move on. Where does this leave us? Stop and think about where we've been. We're talking about sexual immorality. God says, here is my design. Everything outside that design is called sexual immorality. The scriptures speak very harshly toward practicing sexual immorality. Why? Is it a do and don't? No, because everything in this sexual immorality category is that choice for self versus that choice for God. It's worshiping another God. That's effectively what that is. So where does that leave us? It leaves us exactly where Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. It leaves us with the choice. And here's how people tend to choose. One, some people will say, I will serve God. I will surrender all the things in that category, not just sexual immorality, but again, that's our topic. I will surrender my sexuality to God's design. It's not me, it's you. And so we will repent, we will turn and say, I follow God. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. When we say that, that's what we mean. You rule my life, not me. New Testament is full of that kind of language being born again, take up your cross and follow me. 
Those of you who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death and you are now a new person, raised to walk in newness of life. Our old self is dead. All that language in the New Testament is basically saying we are surrendering our sexuality to God. I want to live by your design. That's how some people do. They accept that. Others reject it. And they say, no, I do not accept the biblical perspective on sexuality or anything else, the biblical perspective on sexuality, and I will seek fulfillment, my sexual fulfillment, my gratification in the way that I think is best. And that is the effectively the fall all over again, is we have, God has given us that ability. Will you go this path or will you go that path? Remember the Old Testament, choose this day whom you will serve. If God is God, serve him, but if you're God, serve yourself. In other words, you get that, those two choices, and that's where we stand. And my point is, wherever you are, heterosexual, homosexual, same-sex attraction, whatever it may be, pornography, you pick it. That's our question. Will I seek to serve myself? Do I believe that's my path to happiness and wholeness and fullness and meaning in life? Or will I surrender it and say, no, God, I'm going your way. I trust you. I trust what Jesus Christ said, is that you can make me whole. That's our choice. But recently, there are some in the church. Now I'm talking, because uh, I'm talking about people who are Christians, people who aren't Christians, people who accept God's way, people who don't accept God's way. And that's been that way forever. There's a third category, kind of called a third way. There's some people who are Christians who want to change the biblical standard of morality, who want to say, I can pursue certain things and still be a Christian. In other words, there's a third way. Does that make sense? You hear a lot about it in relation to homosexuality. You don't uh, hear as much about it in uh, relation to heterosexuality, but it's exactly the same thing. It's fundamentally asking, can we change this morality to be something where I can pursue my sexuality as I want and I can be a follower of God? So what are some of the common arguments? And this is going to get to this question. First of all, there's a lot of time and a lot of books being written, and I'm going to dispense with this one pretty quickly. Not because it doesn't deserve some interesting thing. I'd love to talk to you about the specific meaning of Greek words and Hebrew words, and, and we will do that in time if you want. But let me just lump together all of the gymnastics that are required to say the Bible doesn't mean what it actually seems to say. I'm going to lump all that together. There are some common arguments that say, well, you know what? Pornia doesn't mean homosexuality. There's not a word in Greek specifically for homosexuality. Uh, sexual morality for heterosexuals is different now than it was then, and this word probably only meant what they thought then. You understand what I'm saying? We're going to take sexuality and say what the Bible's talking about, sexuality, really isn't what it seems like it's saying. It's, it excludes some things today. The problem with all of those arguments that, that basically want to parse the words and say, well, that doesn't mean exactly that, so we can do this. That doesn't mean exactly that. Or the biblical writers didn't know what we know now. The problem with that is that even the liberal scholars do not agree with that. 
And here's what I want to say. I'm going to give you one quote, but there are many, many more. As you dive into the details of the words and what they mean and the culture and what of their culture at the time, you can come all the way full circle. And when you get to the end, you realize the Bible actually means what it says. So I'm going to take all those arguments and lump them together. I'm going to give you a quote from a guy named uh, Luke Timothy Johnson. He's, he's uh, a, a scholar who believes, for example, that sexual morality in the Bible should be changed. For example, thinks that uh, same-sex marriages should be okay for Christians, that sexual morality is different today. But I want you to understand why he thinks that. He says, this task demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says. And you're going to read a lot of arguments. Well, this Greek word means this, or that Hebrew word meant that. This is a scholar who doesn't uh, agree with this, but basically has the honesty to say that is not what the Scripture says. Appealing to linguistic or cultural subtleties, he said, I don't have much patience with that. The exegetical situation is straightforward. In other words, the Bible is univocal on sexual morality issues, meaning it speaks with one voice very clearly about what is sexual immorality. We know what the text says. He says, but what are we going to do with what the text says? He says, I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture. My point is, is the Scripture says what it says. He just says, I reject that and appeal instead to another authority when we declare, he happens to just be talking in this article about same-sex unions, but there's a bigger issue here, that same-sex unions can be holy and good, and what exactly is that authority? We appeal to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others that claiming our own sexual, listen to all the self thing, claiming my sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way God created me, I should go live it out. That's why it's called a third way is that here's my sexual, this is the way I'm wired. I'm a heterosexual who wants to have sex with a bunch of people or I want to uh, have same-sex attraction and want to express that, but I also want to be a Christian. Liberal scholars look at that and they're at least honest enough to say, you can't make the scripture say something that it doesn't. In other words, you have to put some other authority in front of it. So the first argument, you're going to read a lot of things that say the Bible doesn't say what it seems to say or it doesn't mean what it seems to mean. And I just want to dispense with that and say, that really doesn't hold water. Even liberal scholars who are on that side don't make that argument. Second argument, it's not fair that married heterosexuals can fulfill their sexual desires and others cannot. This gets finally to the, back to the question. This is an interesting argument to make. I, mean, I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. What is the premise of this? And then we'll, then we'll answer it. But what is the premise of this? It's not fair that married heterosexuals, this isn't heterosexual homosexual, this is just married heterosexuals are allowed to express their sexuality in God's design and nobody else is allowed to and that's not fair. What's that language about? I can't do what I want to do. I can't do what everybody else can do. God needs to submit. Here's what this is fundamentally saying. This has never worked well for humanity in all of history. God needs to submit to my sense of fairness. You know what God's answer to that is? Absolutely unapologetically, you're right, you think that's unfair, and I have no issue with that whatsoever. That's God's answer. 
I mean, I'm just being honest with you. Because here, and you know what? That's the best thing that ever happened. God does not do things according to my idea of fairness, and that's the best news you have ever heard. Because you know what? We all, this is what Romans 1 says, we all deserve the wrath of God. That's what's fair. But because of Jesus Christ, he bore my sins for me, and now I'm going to get something that's not fair at all. It's called grace. I get something that's totally unfair. It just happens to be totally unfair in my favor. This is an argument about self. This, this argument doesn't say, if that's what God calls me to do, then thy will be done, not mine. That's not this argument. This is on the self side of it. It's like, I want to fulfill myself. Why can't I? You're being unfair. What does that sound like? 25-year-old? Okay, probably does sound like some 25-year-olds. <laughs> or the two-year-old. Sounds like a two-year-old, doesn't it? It's not fair. Married heterosexuals can fulfill their sexual desires. Others cannot. If you think that fulfilling your sexual desires is the key to happiness, is the highest good, then by all means you should believe that argument and you should reject God's design because God is, is not swayed by this whatsoever. Does that make sense? That is not an argument for a Christian to say, therefore God, I think I got you on that one, I get to go have sex with whoever I want to. God says, sorry, I make the rules here the fact that you think it's unfair gives me an opportunity to say to you, do you trust me or do you not trust me? This says, no, I don't trust you. You're not a good God, you're not a fair God. So yes, this is an argument that gets made. It's actually kind of persuasive emotionally. Yeah, wait, that's not fair. That's not fair at all. I don't have any opportunity at all. God, you're giving me the short end of the stick. It's really, really hard to read the New Testament, to accept the grace of Jesus Christ. He's nailed on a cross for me, and I have the gall to say to God, you know, I don't think you're treating me fairly. That's what this argument's saying. You can tell I don't have a lot of patience with this argument. I have sympathy. I have sympathy with this argument because it puts us in a hard place. We all get put in a hard place. There's, by the way, one of the books on that list is by a lady named Butterfield. Three of the books, by the way, on that list are written by people who have same-sex orientation. Christians who have a same-sex orientation who have chosen God's way versus uh, the cultural narrative. And I think they're really interesting and hopefully they'll be helpful as you think this through about will I follow God's way or will I not? But Butterfield, she had interesting things. She, she uh, had a lot. She was a lesbian, professor, etc. Her story is remarkable in a lot of ways. But basically when she came to Christ, she turned away from that whole lifestyle. And she ends up saying one thing in the book that really convicted me uh, it's true for all of us, but it convicted me. She said, when I came to Christ, I gave up everything but my dog. My girlfriend, my job, my friends, my reputation, everything. What have you given up? I thought, you have just made a really good point. What have I surrendered? Well, the truth is we all surrender something. The only question is, what do we surrender? So this question about fairness is, yes, God calls us to surrender some things. It's not fair that just because I need to give up my greed, I don't make as much money as you do or don't make as much money. That, that just seems to me like not a very good argument to make to God. But that is one that you'll hear. God made me this way, so I should be able to fulfill my God-given desires. What language are you hearing here? Submit to God or self? I, I, I. 
This is the way you made me, so you cannot argue if I just go act the way you made me. I'm just going to put this back in my analogy. So your two-year-old walks into you and says, Mom, Dad, got all your DNA? This is all your fault. This is the way you made me. I don't want to hear any more punishment, right, for the way I'm behaving. You'd go, you're kidding me, right? And I think that's what God says on this is, you're kidding me, right? I mean, think about this argument. People in a fallen world are wired in some very, very hard, difficult ways. There are people who have desires that are very, very destructive. I don't think we want to say that just because you were born with this desire, just because you were born with uh, a a feeling like, you know what, I, I feel tempted to do things that are not, should not be done. That's not an argument that you want to make, is it? And so, again, it's a very self-argument. I should be free to fulfill whatever my desires. You and I don't even agree with that. We lock people up for doing this, right, in a lot of ways. Love overrides specific commands in the Bible. You're going to hear a lot of arguments like this that say, look, I can be a Christian and we can just dispense with some of the things because love is more important. It doesn't say... This argument doesn't say that the Bible doesn't say sexual immorality is there. It's just loving things override it. In other words, why can't I live with my girlfriend? Why can't I live with someone and experience this sexuality with them? I know the Bible says that's outside God's plan, but we're in love. It's a loving thing. It's not hurting anybody. In other words, love overrules what the Bible has to say. And that's an argument that you'll fundamentally hear in one guise or another, is that whatever the Bible says can be overruled with whatever I think is a loving thing to do. That's, what, what are we talking again? Very subjective, very self. I will decide what's loving and what overrules what's in the Bible versus God. You see, all these things really, it comes down to which side will we be on? Will we submit to God? That's what Jesus is asking, is whom will you serve? And then finally, here's one I agree with completely. It is not right to pick on particular sins and not others. For example, here's one of the famous ones. Uh, Someone in a high office in our country even said this, really difficult to to deal with this. We don't eat shellfish, so why should we be against sexual immorality? In other words, there's a prohibition in the Old Testament against eating shellfish, so why are we holding on to the prohibition against sexual immorality when we don't hold on to the prohibition against shellfish. Your people in the New Testament say, well, the New Testament says, 1 Corinthians, that women should not pray with their heads uncovered. We do that. So why are we enforcing the sexual morality? I agree with this in the sense that you don't pick on any one sin. We've already talked about that. All our sin makes us an object of wrath, and it's only the grace of Jesus Christ. It's only the Holy Spirit's power to help us walk in God's way. That, that in which we have any hope at all. But the idea, what this argument basically says is, if you don't do everything, then you don't have to do anything. And that's not an argument that we would accept. The best this argument gets is, maybe we should stop eating shellfish. I don't think you can get this argument to say, whoa, open season, let's start the orgies. You know, this is not an argument that gets you there very well. But basically, I just wanted to cover a few of the basic arguments because people naturally want to say, Christians, you can have it both ways. You can be a Christian, and we can modify biblical perspective on sexuality. And that's something that you're going to hear. The Bible, and scholars will even agree, is really not what the Bible says. But that is an accommodation that people will try to make. Question? Um, 
Everyone is broken. Everyone is a sinner. We all fail. So we are covered by his blood. Why are homosexuals not welcome? Okay, I'm trying to follow that just for a second because I was tracking with you right there. We all, I want to talk to you about the idea of sin. I just, you threw me for a loop at the end. Why are homosexuals not welcome? In the church. Yeah, uh, that's a problem because people who have the same-sex orientation should be welcome in our churches. Like anybody who wants to say, I'm going to turn from the self and I'm going to surrender to Jesus Christ. I follow him. I love Jesus Christ, which means I obey Jesus Christ. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. The only difference is what are we surrendering? Which sin are we turning away from and helping each other turn from? Whether that's pornography or greed or envy or homosexual practice, pick whatever it is. The only difference is what are we turning away from we are all walking together with each other to turn away from that and turn toward God. It's the Holy Spirit that powers us and all of that. So in that sense, that is, is completely unconscionable that there would be any difference in us. I understand culturally there's stigma about certain sins, not just homosexuality. There are certain sins that are stigma. If we had someone, I'll stay in the realm of sexual immorality just for my example, but if you had someone who's a convicted uh, sex offender who says, you know what, I'd repent. I am turning away from that. I have desires that are not healthy and I want to surrender them to God. And they walked in here, would there be a stigma? In our society, there would definitely be a stigma. In the kingdom of God, it's just another person turning away from another sin and we should walk together in that. Do you understand what I'm saying? I agree with the questioner. There, there is no difference. The, the only difference is which sin are we turning away from? The idea of repentance is essential because we all have a path to take, whether it's same-sex attraction, heterosexual, it makes no difference. In other words, the person who's a heterosexual, who's having promiscuous sex, has something to turn away from. The person who has same-sex orientation has a choice to make. Do I follow the cultural narrative or I turn here? We're brothers and sisters in that walk, and we need to be. We have not done that well as a church, and we need to do that well. Well, let me uh, close by saying this. First of all, next week, we're going to invite some of the counselors on stage, and I'd like to drill down into when we turn from sexual immorality, how can we help each other do that? I'd like to drill down into some of these in a very practical way and say, whatever it is we're surrendering, how do we walk with each other out of that? Because that's what we're here to do. And then the next week, I want to talk a little bit about identity, and I want to save time for a lot of questions. The questions we haven't gotten to in this session, I'd like to take time to get there. I'd like to get a lot of your questions in that last time because we want to have an open dialogue about this. But let me close with this idea. We all commit sin, but we are not all committed to sin. Let me say that again. We all commit sin, but we are not all committed to sin. That's the difference between Christ followers and people who are not. God's way, my way. You can say, well, we're all sinners. No, we all commit sin, but we're not all committed to sin. Christ followers say, I do still sin, and I reject it, and I repent, and I am committed to following God. I am committed to surrendering that. People who are following self say, 
You sin just like I do, but I am committed to sin. I am seeking my happiness. Big, big difference there. Huge difference. Those two choices are like a gap. As Christ followers, we are following the path of surrendering everything in our lives, particularly our sexuality, to God's design for that. And our challenge as Christ followers is to put aside our preconceptions about different sins and walk with each other on that path. Does that make sense? I hope this has been somewhat useful. We haven't gotten into as much detail, but I hope you understand what is the biblical perspective on sexual immorality. I don't expect it to be popular, but we need to understand this is what God says is right, and he leaves us with the choice. Do you believe me, God says? Will you trust me and do this my way? Or will you do this your way? And that is the choice before us. As a church, anyone who chooses this way and says, I will surrender everything in my life to God's will, that's what we're welcoming, is come join us because that's what we're all doing and where we're all going. Next week, get some counselors, drill down into this, particularly things like pornography and all. What are some practical ways we can walk out of that? Following week, I want to end the story with where God's really going with this and answer more questions. So I appreciate you guys being here. Thank you for your great questions. Hope to see you next week.